and welcome back to Banter, an official policy podcast of the American Enterprise Institute. I'm Matt Weinset. And I'm Max Frost. Today, we have an interview with Larry Bacow, president of Harvard University. Before taking over as president of Harvard last year, Dr. Bacow served as president of Tufts University for 10 years and spent 24 years on the faculty of MIT before that. He holds a bachelor's in economics from MIT, a JD from Harvard Law School, an MPP from the Harvard Kennedy School, and a PhD in public policy from the Graduate School of Arts and Sciences at Harvard. Pretty impressive guy. Smart guy. My boy's wicked smart. We snagged him right before he spoke at an event here at AEI, so it was a pretty short conversation. But we still covered a lot of ground. Why college costs so much, the purpose of higher education, whether there's a problem of political bias on campus, and much more. Without further ado, here is Dr. Larry Bacow. Dr. Bacow, thank you for joining us today. As I mentioned in the introduction, you are a pretty extraordinary case. After earning a bachelor's degree, you went on to get three more, a joint MPP, JD, and a PhD. But I'm wondering, with higher education costs being what they are today, is that a path that you think is accessible to many people anymore? And is it one that you would even recommend to many students nowadays? Well, I think for most of us, our our careers are a series of fortuitous accidents. I did not set out to acquire all the degrees that I did. It it sort of happened. Uh, I was very fortunate. Uh, I actually graduated a year early from college. I went to MIT, uh, largely to save a year's worth of tuition. So it was... It was a strategy for uh, reducing the cost of my education. Um, I was fortunate to get a fellowship uh, for my master's and PhD. Um, law school was was on me and on my family. Uh, I do think it's still possible, um, but um, one of the big challenges that we face in higher education is it's gotten more expensive in real terms. Right. And... Yeah, on that topic, in your opinion, what is the driving force behind that? I think there are lots of things that contribute to it. Um, Higher education is interesting because it's one of the few industries where competition tends to drive costs up, not down. Uh, We know how to make higher education cheaper. It's not that hard. It's called bigger classes, less student-faculty contact, fewer curricular options, uh, simpler facilities, less support for co-curricular life. I could go on. Um, in the 10 years I was president of Tufts, three years as chancellor of MIT, and now my time at Harvard, not once have I had a student or their parent come into my office, bang the table, and say, do any of those things and lower the price. Uh, If anything, things move in exactly the opposite direction. So that's one reason. Uh, The second reason is technical. uh, And uh, in any uh, sector of the economy where productivity growth lags that for the economy writ large, prices are going to increase higher than inflation. And we've had precious little productivity growth in higher education. Essentially, we're still teaching students the way we did 100 years ago. Until that happens, um, we've, we've got a cost problem on our hands. So, yeah, on that, some people think that online education could be the answer here, that that could help drive costs down a lot. But uh, do you think online education could substantially make a difference in their costs? And probably more importantly, is the quality of online education anywhere close to the quality of the traditional approach? So I I think the right way to ask the question is, can technology help to improve productivity? And the answer is yes, but we're still in the very early stages of it. We've had um, literally a thousand years to perfect the sage on the stage, if you will. You know, one wise person standing in front of a bunch of younger people, helping them to understand and comprehend material. Uh, I would tell you that, you know, maybe we're 
two outs in the first inning of trying to figure out how to use technology uh, to enhance productivity in higher education. Uh, we've made progress already, but there's still a lot more left to be done. Uh, I think that I like to distinguish between using technology and online education mm-hmm. because online education tends to be well-suited to particular types of learners, people who are highly motivated, people who have access to the technology, um, people who are not looking for the kind of immersive experience one achieves in a residential learning setting. Uh, we know from the data that tends to be disproportionately older learners, not your traditional 18 to 22-year-old um, college student. That said, I still think that in traditional residential education settings, there's plenty of opportunities to use technology better. And in fact, even in those places, um, the data show that in many institutions, students take at least one course online um, a year. So uh, over time, I do think it will, will have an impact. Kind of a related question. Obviously, an important topic right now is inequality. I'm sure for students at Harvard, it's incredibly important. Obviously, in Washington, it's a hot topic. Are places like Harvard responsible for driving up inequality? When you look at the fact that median household income in the U.S. is $60,000, average cost of attendance at Harvard, I believe, is over $70,000 a year? A little less than that, about 67000 So if you come from a family with less than $65,000 a year in income, your family contributes nothing to your Harvard education. Okay. So we've made financial aid available so that students of modest means can attend Harvard um, with zero family contribution. Um, All of our financial aid is grant and aid, uh, no loans uh, from Harvard. Moreover, if you um, are middle class, and let's say you come from a family with a family income up to $150,000, your family pays no more than 10% of that income towards a Harvard education. So, um, you know, for a student who comes from a family that makes $150,000 in income, they can go to Harvard cheaper than they go than they can go to almost any public university in America. And when I say 10%, $15,000 a year, tuition, room, board, books, fees, travel, everything. I'm not just talking about support for tuition. So, you know, we've worked hard to make a Harvard education available and accessible to all. So let's turn to the reason why you're at AEI here in the first place. You're here to give a talk, participate in an event on the purpose of higher education. There seems to be a perpetual debate over what that should be. Should it be to instill a liberal education in its students, or should it be to prepare students for the job market? Where do you come down on that question, and do you think it can possibly do both? Well, I recently came from a meeting um, where I was visiting with a bunch of CEOs of uh, tech companies, Um, including some of our most important social media companies in the country. And if you've been reading the newspaper, you know that they've been struggling recently. They've been dealing with issues of privacy. They've been dealing with issues of what are the implicit um, biases in their algorithms. And they have concluded that they need people who actually are trained in philosophy, in ethics, who are capable of surfacing these kinds of questions early on in the process so they don't find themselves in exactly the situation that they find themselves in today. Um, You know, for most of us, the jobs that we're going to be doing, or students who are graduating from college today, the jobs that they're going to be doing 20, 30 years from now have yet to be invented. Uh, So we need to educate students for a lifetime of learning, 
uh, not just for their first job. Uh, I also think that in the world that we live in today, one where technology has disintermediated the editorial function, where information is ubiquitous, where anybody can publish whatever they want, there's actually an even greater return to a liberal education where we teach people how to differentiate the signal from the noise, how to parse an argument, um, how to sift through vast quantities of information, not all quantitative, in many cases qualitative, um, and make intelligent judgments. That's what a liberal education is all about. What's also interesting is that when you sit with CEOs and ask them what they look for when they hire people, they look for people who are great communicators, people who can, can think and write well, and they will tell you that the easiest skills to hire are often um, the technical skills. Uh, what's in, in shorter supply are uh, the softer skills that actually tend to differentiate who succeeds and who doesn't. That is what we teach in a liberal education. So, yeah, on that topic, is there a greater need, do you think, now with populism and things, all these topics, fake news and the ability to decipher what's true, what's real, what's not? Do you think there's a greater need now for liberal education than before? Or do you think that nothing's changed? I, I think there's always been a need for a liberal education. And it's, um, it's what's defined higher education in the United States. Um, but if anything, I think that with the changes that have occurred more recently, uh, I, I think the argument for a liberal education, if anything, is even stronger. Um, uh, now, we should not shy away from also educating students, you know, for the labor market. Um, but I think it's a mistake to judge the quality of an education by how much somebody earns in their first year or two out of college. By the way, one unintended consequence if we do that is we will discourage students or penalize institutions that educate students who want to be entrepreneurs. Uh, because if you think of uh, kids who do startups right out of school, um, they make almost nothing in terms of their actual wages. They basically get paid with lottery tickets, which are equity in the companies. And then they, they have to wait and see. I don't think we want to discourage people from pursuing those opportunities. So you have to be careful in crafting policies that make judgments about who's successful and who's not, or which institutions are successful or not, based strictly on how much the graduates earn a year or two out of school. So how do colleges go about instilling this liberal education? Does it come down to requiring certain classes? Because both Max and I are products of UVA, where they had all sorts of requirements in history, philosophy, humanities, science, you name it. But you could always fulfill those requirements by taking incredibly narrow classes, such as the history of jazz in the 1920s, and that, that's the only history class you take your entire time there, if you, wanted, if you so wanted to dodge history that way. So how do you, you've spoken elsewhere about the need for colleges to create active, engaged citizens. Right. How do you go about doing that? Well, I think you go about doing that in a variety of ways. You do it through the curriculum. And, uh, you know, at Harvard, we have a series of general education requirements, um, which are the courses that satisfy those courses are deliberately structured to be quite broad mm -hmm. and to give the kind of exposure that, you know, uh, some students may otherwise avoid. Um, and I also wish I had a dime for every student who, in their junior or senior year, takes a course like that and gets turned on to something and then marches off into a different direction that they in intended when they, when they came to, to college originally. But I think there are other ways that we encourage students to be active, engaged citizens. Um, I made a point of, you know, when I welcome students 
to Harvard this year of telling them that with this education came a responsibility. And it was a responsibility not just to make themselves a better person, but to work to make um, this a better world. Now, there are lots of different ways that people are going to do that. But I think that anybody who gets the benefit of a great education um, has a responsibility to engage in the broader world. And that can be done in a variety of ways. At a minimum, at a minimum, we want people to educate themselves um, and participate in the political process and vote, you know, inform themselves about the issues and the candidates. Historically, you know, the original intent of a liberal education was to educate citizens for a democracy. We cannot lose sight of the importance of that today. Well, that kind of segues into a different topic we want to talk about, which is ideological diversity on campus. Mm-hmm. And how do you ensure, obviously, people tend to think of universities, particularly Ivy League universities, as very liberal, mm-hmm. progressive places, and increasingly places where there's not much space for conservatives, Republicans, and you know, heterodox thinkers like that. What, are, what is Harvard doing to make sure that you get a full ideological spectrum among students and professors alike? Well, one of the things which we do is that we try and make sure that we have a broad cross-section of people who come to campus and speak. Um, so, you know, uh, Mitch McConnell, Betsy DeVos, Charles Murray have all spoken on our campus, you know, within the last year. Uh, and uh, we make a point of using institutions like the Institute of Politics at the Kennedy School to ensure that um, we have people from across the ideological spectrum who come as fellows of the Institute of Politics. In fact, um, we recently recruited Arthur Brooks, <laughs> head of AEI, to be a, I believe professor, of him. Yeah. a professor at the Kennedy School. So we go, you know, we, we try to do that. I would also point out that for people who think that we brainwash our students, if we're doing that, we're not doing it very effectively. Uh, some of the most prominent conservative voices in America are our graduates. Uh, there are 15 Harvard alumni who serve in the United States Senate right now. Nine of them are Republicans. Six of them are Democrats. If you take a look at the composition of the Supreme Court, uh, you know, um, among the Harvard Law School alumni in the Supreme Court and Harvard College alumni are Neil Gorsuch and John Roberts. Um, so, you know, I could go on. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, but that said, I think it would be a lousy idea if we recruited students or admitted students based upon some ideological test uh, in any dimension. I also think that when you know we go to hire somebody who's going to teach linear, linear algebra, we shouldn't be asking her you know, what her voting patterns are. Yeah. Um, you know, there are countries that have tried that without great success. <laughs> yeah, I agree with all that. that. I think the, uh, the concerns about indoctrination and left-wing ideology is definitely overblown. But a more sophisticated critique, I think, might come from Adrian Vermeule, who's at Harvard Law, Harvard Law professor. Patrick Deneen makes a similar point from Notre Dame, that it's not so much a bias against conservatives per se, but most of the conservative voices that are expressed on college campuses tend to be in the kind of the right-wing liberal, the libertarian strain of thought, as opposed to the more traditionalist-oriented do you, do you get a sense? Do you have a sense of that? Do you think? You know, one of the interesting things about running a university is that um, you realize that people don't speak with one voice. Mm-hmm. Uh, I often say that we embrace diversity because we learn from our differences, and you will find almost every point of view represented. You know, 
not in the same proportion, but was it George Bernard Shaw who said, if you're not liberal when you're young, you have no heart. When you're not conservative when you're older, you have no head. You know, people evolve over time. I'm not sure how much time we have left, but something else I think we're interested in talking about here, just maybe a final question. Yeah. I know Harvard's a small school, and there's only 7,000 spots. We both went to big state universities. Mm-hmm. As the composition of the world changes over the next 20, 30, 40, 50 years, and you're going to have immense numbers of students coming from China, India, Pakistan, Nigeria, I mean, all these countries, and there's going to be fewer and fewer slots for qualified American students. Does Harvard have any kind of obligation to American students, or should it completely match, you know, the relative number of people from each country or, you know? So... uh... It's a good question. I, I'm often asked it in a different way, so let me try and reframe it a little bit. Um, you know, are we a global university which happens to be located in the United States, or are we a distinctly American university which has a global reach? Mm-hmm. Uh, I think we're the latter. Um, you know, it's it's important to understand that Harvard students and alumni have helped not just to shape this country as it is, but actually to create it. You know. On the day the Declaration of Independence was signed, we were 140 years old. Um, my office is in the second is in the oldest building on campus, which quartered George Washington and his troops during the Revolutionary War and the Battle of Boston. We have deep, deep ties um, in this country, and I think we always have to. We will always be fundamentally an American institution. One that's open to students from throughout the world, no question about it. But we are an American institution, and we understand that. This is a fascinating conversation, but unfortunately, we have to leave it right here. Dr. Bacow, thank you so much for joining us on Banter. Thank you for having me. Thank you. And thank you all for listening. As always, you can subscribe to Banter wherever podcasts are found. And while you're there, please leave us a five-star rating and review. You can also send feedback to us at banter at AEI.org. We'll be back next week ahead of the Trump-Kim Summit to talk about American diplomacy with North Korea. Hope you have a great week. See you then. I'm Matt Weinset. And I'm Max Frost. (laughs) (laughs) Let's do that again. My mouth's all fizzy for that. That's why. Is that even from AEI? Are you bringing that in yourself? Yeah, dude. No, this is the new stuff they have here. They switched out the other kind for Deer Park. Why don't they get the Deer Park normal water bottles, which were my favorite growing up? You do realize Deer Park is just Poland Springs, but, like, worse. I didn't know that, but it's (laughs) it's better than Aquafina. I hate Aquafina.